All the time. You realize we're going to serve communion at the end of the worship service today. We've, we're going to end up doing about everything you can do in church today. This is marvelous. Wednesday before last, I preached the final night of a revival in Pine Valley Methodist Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. My travel plans were really simple. I was going to catch a Wednesday morning flight from St. Louis to Charlotte, grab a bite on a short layover, fly into Wilmington, quick exchange, fly out in plenty of time to arrive at my hotel, change clothes, lead a four o'clock Bible study for pastors, attend a 5.30 dinner, and preach the revival service at 6.30. After that, I would go out to eat with the pastor, get some sleep at the hotel, fly back home the next day. Simple, in and out, do it all the time. As we were preparing to board in St. Louis, in addition to running into my friend Corey, who helped me pass the time, as we were preparing to board, the pilot came out from the back and he wanted the microphone. And the first thing I thought is this is not good. This is just not good. And he announced that we were delayed due to a mechanical failure. I'm never horribly concerned being delayed due to a mechanical failure because I have these reoccurring fantasies of not dying in an airplane crash. So I was pretty good with things, pretty good with the delay. They came out a little bit later and identified the source of the mechanical failure. An interior light bulb had burned out. And let me tell you something. At home, when a light burns out, it doesn't take very long. On an airplane, apparently, it is a very complicated process. Because we were there a really long time. We finally arrived in Charlotte. I would guess almost everybody who had a connector flight missed it, including Corey. And we got there about 10 minutes before my flight took off. So I did not bring luggage because, hey, I'm only there for a few hours. I looked. It's three gates away. I am sprinting across the airport. I'm just sprinting across the airport just like... Just like I was on a TV commercial in the 70s. Um, I'm sprinting across the airport. I finally get to my gate. My plane flew off, took off at 1.01 is when the flight was scheduled. I got there at 1.02. And wouldn't you know it, the only flight in the history of the world to leave on time just did. So I, I missed my flight. I went and checked There was another flight leaving, but not in time to get me to any of it in Wilmington. And so I just stood there for a moment and I worked on plan B. So here's what I came up with. Rent a car, drive it to Wilmington. It was about 1.30, 1.45 by the time I got everything settled. Rent a car, drive it to Wilmington. It's about four hours. Uh, Three and a half if I really went fast and didn't stop. Uh, I would miss the Bible study and I would miss supper, but I could still get there for the meeting. So that was a plan. It seemed like a good plan. So I went downstairs to the rental area. Well, they're renovating downstairs, so I spent a lot of time lost. I finally get to the rental area and there were a bunch of 
car rental places, as you would expect. So I went to the first one that looked free, said I'd like to rent a car to Wilmington. He said, we have no cars for rent. And I was thinking to myself, car rental place, right? So I went to the next place. We have no cars. I went to the next place, no cars. Third place finally was honest with me. No one has any cars for one way. None. There are no cars available. So I went to another place. I I just kept going down the line, and everyone told me the exact same thing. There were no cars available. So finally I get to the very last place. It's a Hertz place, only to be told there are no cars available. I don't know about you, but I only come with a plan B. I don't really have plan C. And there didn't seem to be one emerging. So I'm just standing there in the line in a little bit of a daze. Kind of a deer in a headlight kind of daze. And that morning, when I was getting dressed early that morning, I felt pinged to where a Christchurch pullover, one of those black pullovers with a hood that we have in the bookstore, I just felt pinged to wear it. It made no sense to me. And, and yet, I wrote a book on all this, so I thought I better go with it. <laughs> and so I just wore the, the pullover, right? So right when the very last guy, the Hertz guy, told me I was out of luck, I'm standing there trying to figure out what to do because I don't know anybody in Charlotte. I, I, I just didn't know what to do. And the supervisor walked out of the back. And she looked at my Christchurch insignia. And she said, and I quote, God is good. (laughs) And I regained my composure. And I said, all the time. And she said, all the time. And I said, God is good. She said, I have no guarantees for you. But God may have provided a ram in the thicket. Now, a ram in a thicket refers to a story that actually Reverend Carmen told last Sunday morning. Abraham had been instructed by God in a test of faith to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, Abraham passed the test. He was willing to do so. God caught Abraham's arm He's not going to sacrifice Isaac, but a sacrifice still needed to be made. And the narrative says that there was a ram stuck in the thicket. So it was a a substitute. God made a way where there seemed to be no way. And the supervisor said, we may have a ram in the thicket. Well, she soon returned and she said, yeah, I've got a car for you. She said, we ended up with this car, and it belongs in Wilmington, and we were going to have to figure out how to get it there. And she says, we'll just have you take it to Wilmington and leave it there for us. I looked at her, and I said, you are an angel sent by God. You do realize in the Greek, an angel can be an earthly or a heavenly messenger. It's just somebody who is sent by God. I said, you are an angel sent by God. And a few minutes later, I climbed into a... Drum roll, please. Dodge Ram. (laughs) True. Purple. (laughs) 
and I needed to get across the state fast, it was a charger. <laughs> you guys ever driven a charger? They are awesome. A ram in the thicket. Indeed. Well, I missed the pastor's Bible study and I missed the dinner. But I got there just before the service began. And for whatever reason, I had perfect peace. You ever felt like even in the midst of a disaster that God just had you? I just felt perfect peace. It came my time to preach. And it could not have gone any better. And all I could think about was that God is indeed good all of the time. And that's how things work in the kingdom of God. We're in Jerusalem, third decade, first century. Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, ascended, Pentecost arrived. The only 120 Christians in the world, that would be about these two sections, the only 120 Christians in the world were filled with the Holy Spirit Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, goes out into the streets. 3,000 people come to the church that day. And what we get in Acts are characteristics of that early church. A church firing on all cylinders. And we call those the Acts 8. In week 1, I talked about wonder. In week 2, I talked about miracles. And in the miracles, we talked about an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer in the Old Testament is a monument built for the glory of God. Every time people look at that monument, it is a testimony to the glory of God. And so what we felt called to do was to build an Ebenezer here. And we're building it with prayer stones. Up front, there are some green stones in these bowls. And I asked people on that Sunday to let the stones represent a miracle you need God to do in your life. And if you've got several miracles, just take one stone per miracle. And every time you see those stones, let them be a reminder to you to pray. And then when God answers your prayer, on a Sunday morning during the last song, I want you to bring those stones to the Ebenezer and drop them in. And we are going to give God the glory and the praise because we serve a miracle-working God. Well, since I preached last time, I've had five people give me stones with stories about the miraculous thing God has done in their life. This one that I just got walking into this service has been a miracle in the making for years and years. God has answered these prayers. Let's give God a hand. Come up during communion, grab a stone. When God answers the prayer, toss it in. Then we talked about fellowship and generosity and worship. And today we're going to talk about communion. The, the passage says, And they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared meals with great joy and generosity. One of the things I really work hard to do as a preacher is to tell Bible stories from differing points of view. You see, I've noticed over my life that when we think we know something, we stop listening. That's why men always forget directions. The second we think we know it, we just stop listening. I do this all the time. Uh, if I know something, I stop listening. And a lot of times we, we're engaged in something, but if we're reading the Bible, how many of you are reading the New Testament with us this year? 
Yeah, we were reading the Bible. If you see a story that you think you already know, you say, I've known that since I was a kid, we tend to skip over it. And that's why I'm always trying to say, let's look at it from a different point of view. Let's change our camera angles. And if we can do that, then we get all kinds of fresh new insights into very familiar passages. So today we're going to revisit the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It's recorded in John 13, 1 through 5. And where John puts things is important because John has no interest in chronology. He's not doing these things as they happen. So here's the sequence. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He left town. He returned to town. He processed into the city on a donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. And then he outlined his intentions to a group of Greeks to whom he gave audience. The big question for everybody at this point in Jesus' ministry is what is his end game? Clearly, he's made an impact. Jesus is John the Baptist plus miracles. Clearly, he's made an impact. Clearly, he has a mounting group of enemies. But what is his end game? That's what people were always wondering. And I believe that this account of the foot washing answers the question of the end game of Jesus. He came to give us Community, Christian community, true spirit-filled Christian community. And the way we enter that is by accepting the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. And when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we gain access to that Christian community. Let's take a look at the passage. John 13, verses 1 and 2. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and returned to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them until the very end. For John, anytime he uses the word hour, it's always a countdown to the cross. Jesus came to die. And so for John, the hour, the, the hourglass is always diminishing. We're always getting closer and closer to the cross. Passover is the annual event that John uses to mark time in his gospel. It appears this is Jesus' final Passover, what we would call Holy Week. Verse three, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus knew, I find it to be utterly intriguing. When I read the gospels, I'm always wondering, when did Jesus know? Jesus was fully human, he's fully God, but when did Jesus know? My guess is the inklings of his divine destiny started when he was a child, developed through the years, became even clearer during his ministry years. But by the time that Holy Week arrives, Jesus is laser focused. He knows. And because he knows, what did he do? Verses four and five. He got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water in a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with a towel he had around him. We have no cultural context for this, none. And that's why we don't lean into it. We do not wash each other's feet, unless you're like a parent and you got kids that run around barefooted in the summer. We really do not wash each other's feet. It is not a standard practice in our culture. So we're gonna have to get some understanding of what Jesus is doing before we understand what's going on. Jesus' wardrobe would have been typical. Five pieces. Tunic was the woolen basic garment. 
extended from the shoulders to below the knees, kind of like long underwear if you cut the pants into shorts and short sleeves. That was a tunic. Belt could be cut leather, it could be a rope, it could be folded strip of cloth, whatever, it held your tunic in place. And if you used cloth, you could store money by folding it up in it. Sandals, heavy cuts of leather, constructed much as sandals are today. Then you're going to have a head covering, and then you're going to have a cloak or a rope. One might be a little thicker than the other, but in the spring, in the, in the summer, it's just hot. So you're going to have something light around you. In the winter, you're going to have something heavy around you. It says Jesus took off his robe, so my inferences must have been chilly. I think we're talking about a time when it's a little bit colder. In Jesus' day, the side roads of Jerusalem were unpaved, and people wore sandals. Feet were always dirty. And when you entered a house, there was a basin of water and a towel kept by the main entry, and it was for self-service use. If you were a person of means or if you were entertaining, you would actually have a servant there. The lowliest servant or the lowliest family member had foot washing duty. It would be the equivalent of taking out the trash today. They had foot washing duty. And so you would go in and there would be someone to wash your feet. Well, feet were washed all of the time, but it was considered an unbelievably menial task. For example, we know that no rabbi would ever ask his disciples to wash his feet. It would have been demeaning to the disciples. So when Jesus takes off his robe, when Jesus grabs a towel, when he gets down to the basin, Jesus is doing something out of the ordinary. He is doing something radical. He's doing something that's going to get everyone's attention. Last Sunday, how many of you watched the Super Bowl last Sunday? You know, usually it's a cultural event interrupted by a football game, but actually it was a good football game last Sunday. But there was a commercial that came on with the He Gets Us campaign. And they ran a commercial clearly indicating that Jesus washed the feet of absolutely everyone. Now, clearly they were trying to be provocative because that's what that campaign does. They were trying to get people talking and you know, it cost them about $7 million, but a lot of people definitely were talking. You can imagine how the commercial played out if you didn't see it. Jesus is washing feet, and then it moves out into the furthest edges of society. But the big idea was that Jesus didn't hate, which is absolutely correct. The big idea is that he washed feet. Well, I got to tell you, I am not usually critical of things. I'm not critical by nature. Uh, particularly of evangelistic efforts. You know, it's their money, they're doing their thing, they can do what they want, right? And I don't feel like I gotta agree with everything in the whole world. Uh, I, I just never have. So I usually don't get too troubled when I see stuff, unless it's just straight up heresy or something. But I'm watching this commercial and it just doesn't set well with me. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why. You ever have something just hit you sideways, and for the life of you, couldn't figure out why? Well, that was me watching this commercial. It just didn't ring true to me. And I got thinking about it, which I'm sure is what the people that made the commercial wanted folks to do. I got thinking about it, and I discovered my problem. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples when he was teaching them how to live in Christian community. His point was that we're to go out of our way 
to humbly serve and care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That was what he modeled. Jesus didn't wash everyone's feet. He washed the disciples' feet. Concerning the unrepentant, Jesus didn't come to serve them. He came to save them. Saving people requires repentance on their part, and it results in changed lives. That was what I didn't see. Now, it further occurred to me that if they would have chosen to show Jesus eating with people of all sorts, that would have been in complete alignment with Scripture. You see, for me, the foot thing just didn't wash. When Jesus encounters people, he always says, go and sin no more, never as you were. Eating with folks is an evangelistic enterprise. But washing feet is an insider's thing. So how do we as Christians wash the proverbial feet of one another? Well, that hurt supervisor in Charlotte saw that I was in a bad place. And my guess is she sees people in the bad places all the time. Wouldn't you guess? I mean, have you, have you flown lately? I mean, my guess is she sees people in bad places all the time. But my pullover identified me as a brother in Christ. And God clearly pinged her to help me. She wasn't just doing her job. She didn't have to do that. She was living the ping life. And she reached out to a brother in Christ. She could have easily turned around and gone back into the back. As I think about it, she was washing my feet in Charlotte. So I could wash the feet of hundreds of others that evening in Wilmington. I was on the receiving end of Christian community in the early afternoon so I could be on the giving end of Christian community that night. I believe that the message of the foot washing is absolutely we should love everyone. Absolutely we should be kind to everyone. But we're to go way out of our way to serve fellow Christians. Why? Because a lot of times there's just more going on than what you think is going on. Your ping may not be about you in that minute. It may be a small part of something really big that God is wanting to do. I remember a particular play in high school. I was a wide receiver. And on this particular play, I was supposed to double back. The tailback was coming toward me. And I was just supposed to hit the very first guy chasing the tailback. That's all I was supposed to do. So I, I lined up. The tailback's coming toward me. There are three guys on the tailback. Three. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I decided to hit the third guy. I, I have no idea. I mean, that being said, I was 17 years old. I had a lot of bad ideas back then. Well, anyway, so I, I'm running. I let the first guy go. I let the second guy go. Boom. I took out the third guy. Well, quite tragically, the first guy absolutely annihilated our running back. Just terrible. Just terrible. What a bad decision. I was unable to do what I was asked to do. All I had to do was do what I was told and something much bigger than me probably would have unfolded very well. But because I failed, the whole play failed miserably. Sometimes when God pings you to do something, 
You say, well, that may not be very consequential. It may just be a small part of something big that God is wanting to do. So, are you ready for the rest of the story? When I arrived at the Pine Valley Methodist Church that evening, the place was packed. Packed. The pastor said, God must really be up to something. Because Satan sure didn't want you to get here. And I thought about God must really be up to something because he did a lot of miracles to get me here. So let's just see what God wants to do. So that evening, I took Christ Church to Wilmington. I preached. I introduced prayer stones and the Ebenezer. People came up and picked up prayer stones to represent the miracle that they needed. I encouraged them to bring them back when God answered their prayers. And we got that conversation going with God and with the miraculous and with people. And after the service was over, they said, everybody that needs a miracle in their life, come and pray. There were eight of us. Eight of us were praying for folks. We prayed for a half an hour before the lines went down. I prayed for dozens and dozens of people myself, and there were seven more people there. I felt the presence of God. Afterwards, my trip home went just fine. And last weekend, I received an email that I'd like to share with you. Shane, you were in Wilmington, North Carolina, Wednesday night. My husband and I brought you a picture of our great-granddaughter, Scarlett, who's in Children's Hospital fighting leukemia, AML. She was one year old when she was diagnosed, went through two years of chemo, and then went into remission. Last August, now at the age of six, we were devastated with the news the cancer had returned. She went through a transplant in October with her four-year-old sister, Violet, being the donor. The transplant had been labeled a fail two days before Christmas. So they started more chemo, and she's been going through chemo ever since. Wednesday night, you prayed for Scarlett, and you told me that you would not forget Scarlett. Well, God didn't either. This morning at 9 o'clock, I got a text from my granddaughter that the doctors said that Violet's cells had now completely taken over Scarlet's 100%. Our granddaughter is shocked, but we aren't. They're going to send her home today to reunite with her brother and sister and daddy. The remaining chemo will be done on an outpatient basis. When you prayed for her Wednesday night, we felt God working before we ever left the service. We'll not know for another month if she's completely cancer-free. But we know that God is healing her. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming to Pine Valley this week. We'll never forget the impact you've made. God is good all of the time. In our, we've got the power to do nothing. But when we're obedient to God and we go with the pings and we let the Holy Spirit leave us and we just do what we're asked. God can orchestrate incredible, incredible things. In the story of Abraham, God put a ram in the thicket to save a little boy named Isaac. Perhaps last week, God put a Dodge Ram in the thicket so we could bring healing to a little girl named Scarlett. 
My point this morning is that communion is more than the elements we take. It's a shared life that unites us in Christ. Jesus said to his followers, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. When we hear and heed the God promptings, the pings, we live out that love and we turn the noun into a verb and God can do incredible things through flawed people like you and me. And what unites this community? Christ. Christ, his body, his blood. Christ is what brings us together. Christ is what gives us more in common than anything else ever could. This is all about Jesus. And he invites us to be a part of this great adventure called life, where all we have to do is hear and heed the pings. I'm going to invite the stewards to come forward. I'm going to ask you if you'd pray with me. Great and mighty God, we pray your blessings upon these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be Christ's body in this world redeemed by his blood. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for the things we do that we shouldn't and the things we shouldn't do that, that we do. And free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unite us together in Christ. Unite us together in Christian community. That your work may be accomplished in this world. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. At Christ Church, you do not have to be a member of the church to take communion. You just need to be somebody that wants to follow Jesus. If you need gluten-free elements or you'd prefer prepackaged elements, Shelly would love to serve you in the front. At Christ Church, we take a little piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and we take communion that way. There are stations at both sides of the balcony. There are stations throughout the front. The ushers will bring you forward. If you've got a miracle, a miracle prayer that God has answered this week and you want to bring a stone up, bring it right to the Ebenezer. Drop that thing in good and loud so we can just celebrate the goodness of our God. Would you come as the ushers bring you forward?